The supporter approaches you and says, Senator, I am old fashioned and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one man and one woman. What is your response? Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. And I'm going to say, then just marry one woman. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, for this one more day, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Now, I said for one more day, that's it. On the next episode, you'll hear the familiar voices of Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen. But today we've got a lot of ground to cover because, as has been the case for the last month or so, it has been nonstop breaking news. So let's begin Friday morning. We'd been kept in suspense as to whether or not former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch would show up Friday for her closed-door testimony in the House impeachment inquiry because of the letter the White House counsel sent proclaiming there would be no cooperation. But Yovanovitch did arrive at the Capitol as scheduled. Within an hour or so of her testimony beginning, her opening statement was reported on by the media. One account from Twitter reports that Yovanovitch said that her departure came as a direct result of pressure the president placed on the State Department to remove her. Another said that in a broadside to the Trump administration, she warned, quote, harm will come when private interests circumvent professional diplomats for their own gain, not the public good. And another quote, only interests that will be served are those of our strategic adversaries like Russia. Adam Goldman of The New York Times wrote, quote, Yovanovitch delivered a scathing indictment of his administration's conduct of foreign policy. She warned that private influence and personal gain have usurped diplomats' judgment, threatening to undermine the nation's interests. And then there was this report from NBC News. Further bucking the administration's admonitions, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, has signaled that he will testify before the House next Thursday in compliance with a congressional subpoena 
issued earlier this week when he failed to appear. And yet there was still more bad news for the dumpster on Friday morning when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled against the president. In a two-to-one ruling, the court upheld the broad investigative powers of Congress and rejected Trump's bid to block lawmakers from subpoenaing financial documents. In this case, that means that Congress can seek eight years of Trump's business and financial records from his accounting firm. And if that's not enough, Thursday's bombshells keep exploding. The two men who helped Rudy Giuliani dig up dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden and his son in Ukraine, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, were arrested Wednesday night at Dulles Airport by the FBI. They were attempting to leave the country. Reports said not only did they have no return tickets, they had no plans to come back. The four-count indictment alleges an elaborate scheme to help an unnamed Ukrainian government official and a person who's described as having Russian roots gain access to U.S. politicians and government officials. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, who coincidentally holds the same position once held by Rudy Giuliani, announced the indictments and arrests. The two men are also accused of using their power and financial leverage to influence former Representative Pete Sessions and to push for the removal of Marie Yovanovitch, then the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. She's the one testifying Friday. According to the indictment, Parnas and Fruman, who are both U.S. citizens born in former Soviet republics, donated money to Sessions when he was the House Rules Committee chairman and pledged to raise additional funds for his 2018 campaign if he would agree to help oust Yovanovitch. Prosecutors also said this is an ongoing investigation, suggesting more shoes could drop. By the way, Republican politicians who've accepted money from those two men are now scrambling to return it, including Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And although Congress is still technically on recess, there are more subpoenas that have been issued this week, including one to Energy Secretary Rick Perry. Last week, Trump told House Republicans that he was urged by Perry to make that July 25th phone call to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky that's at the center of the impeachment inquiry. Someone else who will testify next week is Fiona Hill. She's Donald Trump's former top aide on Russia and Europe. She reportedly plans to tell Congress that Rudy Giuliani and the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, circumvented the National Security Council and the normal White House process to pursue a shadow policy on Ukraine. Perhaps the dominoes have started to fall. But there's still more news coming out. Going back to that whistleblower report, and the Washington Post is reporting that at least four national security officials were so worried by the Trump administration's attempts to pressure Ukraine for political purposes that they raised concerns with a White House lawyer both before and immediately after that July 25th phone call between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president. The Post writes, The nature and timing of the previously disclosed discussions with National Security Council legal advisor John Eisenberg indicate that officials were delivering warnings through official White House channels earlier than previously understood, including before the call that precipitated the whistleblower complaint and the impeachment inquiry of the president. 
Within minutes, the report says, senior officials, including National Security Advisor John Bolton, were being pinged by subordinates about problems with what the president had said to his Ukrainian counterpart, Zelensky. Bolton and the others scrambled to obtain a rough transcript that was already being locked down on that highly classified computer network. Oh, what a tangled web they weave. And I need to tip my hat to the journalists who are insisting that elected officials answer simple yes or no questions. Let's start with Vice President Mike Pence, who just would not answer NBC's Von Hilliard's query, did you know that Trump held up U.S. military aid to Ukraine in order to pressure the foreign government to investigate Trump's potential 2020 rival, Joe Biden? Now listen to how Hilliard keeps pushing when Pence doesn't answer. Well, were you ever aware, Mr. Vice President, an interest in the Bidens, an interest in investigating the Bidens was at least in part of the reason for aid to Ukraine being held up? I, what, I never discussed uh, the issue of, of uh, the issue of the Bidens with President but Zelensky. The and uh, you ever aware of the I, uh, what I what I can tell you is that all of our discussions internally, I mean, the president and our team, in our context, in my office with Ukraine, were entirely focused on the broader issues of the lack of European support. But you were you were aware corruption. of the interest in the Bidens being investigated. I was and that being tied to aid to Ukraine being held up. What? Well, that's your question. Let me be very clear. Um, the issue of aid and 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 our efforts with regard to Ukraine uh, were from from my experience. Uh, in no way connected uh, to uh, the very legitimate concern the American people have about corruption that took place, about things that happened in the 2016 election in Ukraine, or about... So, Pence was given ample opportunity to answer the question, but he didn't. And then there was this tag-team effort to get an answer from Colorado's Senator Cory Gardner on this question. Do you believe it's appropriate for the President of the United States to ask a foreign leader to investigate a political rival. Yes or no? Well, look, this is what we're going to get into. The Senate Intelligence Committee is having an investigation, a bipartisan investigation. Unfortunately, though, what we've seen is a very political process take over. If you look at Al Green in Texas, member of Congress, has said, we need to impeach President Trump now because we might not be able to beat him in November. That's about politics. That's not what the serious investigation should be about. But, but is you, it? But is it? But is it appropriate? Joe, I answered your question. No, you, no, you didn't. Is it? Is it a yes? Or? Is it a yes or? It's a yes or no. Well, here's yes. the here's what we see in the is House of Representatives. You see a very partisan process taking place. Why is it that when you all do stories or we see reports in the news, it's about four states? Colorado, Arizona, Maine, and North Carolina. Seems to be about politics and elections, other than the serious process that it is. But the question is, is it appropriate for a president Look, to I think be we are going to have an investigation, and it's a, a it's a nonpartisan investigation. But Senator, it's a nonpartisan no investigation. It's an answer that you get from a very serious investigation. But would you be okay with it if it was a Democrat asking a foreign government? Look, here's what we're doing. What we saw, I saw immediately was a jump to a very partisan, very partisan, serious use of a tool. That went on for about four minutes, and he just wouldn't answer the question. Same thing with Senator Joni Ernst, Susan Collins, and a number of others. They just won't say it. But I must point out, retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who was ousted as Trump's national security advisor last year, was asked the same question Thursday. He understands how you answer that question. Do you think it is appropriate 
for the President of the United States to solicit foreign interference in our political process? Uh, of, of course, no. No, it's, it's absolutely not. How refreshing. Somebody actually answering a question straight on, but it figures he's no longer in the administration. Right. Well, the hits just keep on coming. There's more breaking news. In fact, a big change at one of the big cable channels. I'll explain in a moment. Plus, still to come, a conversation with my old friend and colleague, broadcaster, journalist, talk show host, former CIA case officer, Jack Rice, will weigh in on all the insanity happening. So don't go away. That's next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host on today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. One more time until Brad and Desi return. I told you that there was more breaking news. This happened Friday afternoon on Fox, where the one credible news voice on that channel, Shepard Smith, just said goodbye. I am eternally grateful for the opportunity. For handing me the breaking news reins as managing editor, senior correspondent, and chief news anchor for this network, I am thankful and humbled. I've worked with the most talented, dedicated, and focused professionals I've ever known. They sacrifice endlessly and tirelessly to get the news exactly right, and I am so proud of them. And I'm honored to have anchored their work each day. I'll miss them and our time together greatly and deeply. So recently, I asked the company to allow me to leave Fox News. After requesting that I stay, they obliged. Under our agreement, I won't be reporting elsewhere, at least in the near future, but I will be able to see more of Gio and Lucia and our friends and family. Then we'll see what comes along. This is my last newscast here. Thank you for watching today and over the decades as I traveled to many of your communities and anchored this program, Studio B and Fox Report, plus endless marathon hours of breaking news. It's been an honor and my pleasure. Even in our currently polarized nation, it's my hope that the facts will win the day. Facts at Fox? Good luck with that. But what's very curious about that is it comes the day after Bill Barr, the attorney general, had dinner with Fox News owner and chairman Rupert Murdoch at his home in New York. Huh? 
We don't know what they discussed, but perhaps Bill Barr was playing Roy Cohn to Donald Trump and saying, we don't like that Shepard Smith. He's a purveyor of fake news, echoing his boss. Don't know. Can't prove it. But what Shepard Smith did say is he asked to be let out of his contract. And after they asked him to stay, they finally gave in to his wishes. Good for him for escaping that madhouse. Bad for the people who still watch Fox, who occasionally got real news thanks to Shepard Smith. I hate to think who they're going to replace him with. A few other stories to update you on since, since the last segment. Federal authorities are conducting a criminal investigation into the business relationship between Rudy Giuliani and the two men charged Thursday in that alleged campaign finance scheme. Yes, that means the president's personal attorney is also the subject of a criminal investigation. Let that sink in. And this just crossed my desktop from James Laporta at Newsweek. I'm just going to read to you the story because I can't paraphrase this. It's that disturbing. A contingent of U.S. special forces was caught up in Turkish shelling against U.S.-backed Kurdish positions in northern Syria days after Donald Trump told his Turkish counterpart he'd withdraw U.S. troops from certain positions in the area. A senior Pentagon official said shelling by the Turkish forces was so heavy that the U.S. personnel considered firing back in self-defense. Newsweek has learned through both an Iraqi Kurdish intelligence official and the senior Pentagon official that special forces operating on Mashtanaur Hill in the majority Kurdish city of Kobani fell under artillery fire from Turkish forces conducting their so-called Operation Peace Spring against Kurdish fighters backed by the U.S. but considered terrorist organizations by Turkey. Again, Turkish forces opened fire on U.S. forces still in the region. Instead of returning fire, the special forces withdrew once the shelling had ceased. Newsweek previously reported Wednesday that the current rules of engagement for U.S. forces continue to be centered around self-defense and that no order has been issued by the Pentagon for a complete withdrawal from Syria, despite Donald Trump's lies to the contrary. The Pentagon official said the Turkish forces should be aware of U.S. positions, quote, down to the grid. The official couldn't specify the exact number of personnel present, but indicated they were, quote, small numbers below company level, so somewhere between 15 and 100 troops. Newsweek reached out to the Pentagon for comment on the situation, but so far, at press time, has not gotten a response. Unbelievable. And the hits just keep on coming. I promise you, as I'm recording this news update, more breaking news keeps coming across my desktop. This is lovely from The Hill. Let me just read the headline to you because I couldn't make this up if I tried. White House accidentally sends Ukraine talking points to Democrats again. Yet we heard this story just, what, last week when they sent the the talking points to the Democrats. Well, the White House accidentally sent Democrats a list of talking points related to ex-Ukraine Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch's Friday House deposition, according to two sources with knowledge of the email. It's the second time in a month the administration has sent its Ukraine talking points to the Democrats. The email included guidance for Republicans seeking to defend the president from potentially damaging witness testimony from an ambassador who was removed from her post in May under controversial circumstances. This is unreal. 
To reiterate what I told you earlier, Yovanovitch told House lawmakers that she was removed after a concerted campaign against her from Donald Trump and his allies. She also said in her opening statement that the State Department had, quote, been under pressure from the president to remove me since the summer of 2018. Of course, they have no excuse. So the talking points are what you'd expect. It's their strategy of denial. Quote, We are not concerned with any information Yovanovitch might share because the president did nothing wrong. Talking point number one. But we are concerned that Schiff is putting her in a precarious position by having her testify in secret without State Department lawyers be present. Not only is it grammatically erroneous, it's right-wing propaganda talking points. But it added, it raises serious questions about why Schiff is willing to put career officials in such risky situations while bullying them with legally unfounded threats of obstruction charges. And added that Schiff is, quote, willing to ride roughshod over fair process and to use career officials to further a baseless political objective, end quote. They're grasping at straws and lying. And it's all going to come out in the wash. It already is. I'd like to end our news update on an upbeat note. So on Thursday night, CNN held an LBGTQ forum. I think nine of the Democratic contenders participated. One of the high points of the evening was Elizabeth Warren's answer to this question. Uh, let's say you're on the campaign trail and you're I approached. Have you have been, yes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, a, and a supporter approaches you and says, Senator, I am old-fashioned, and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one man and one woman. What is your response? Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. (laughs) And I'm going to say, then just marry one woman. (laughs) I'm cool with that. Assuming you can find one. Ooh, snap. Now that's that's what I'm talking about. All right. Uh, With that, we're going to take a break and come back on the other side and talk with my old friend and colleague, former CIA case officer Jack Rice, about the madness in our world. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host. One more time on the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Secret Agent Man. Secret Agent Man. They're you a number. I know they take away. It's Nicole Sandler back with you. My last day guest hosting the broadcast. For now, anyway. So, the situation in northeastern Syria is horrendous. Reports of civilian casualties among the Kurds at the hands of Turkey are escalating. 
But on Friday morning, we learned that the Pentagon has called on Turkey to halt its military offensive into Syria, warning of serious consequences if they don't comply. According to Chief Pentagon spokesman Jonathan Hoffman, in a Thursday phone call with the Turkish Minister of National Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, quote, made it clear that the United States opposes Turkey's uncoordinated actions. He added that the Turkish strikes place at risk the progress in combating ISIS and that its action, quote, risks serious consequences for Turkey. This warning from the Pentagon comes after Trump announced earlier this week, after a phone call with the Turkish president, that Turkey would proceed with a long-planned operation in northern Syria and that U.S. forces would be withdrawn from the area. That move by Trump was widely viewed as giving the go-ahead for the military incursion, as U.S. forces had been acting as a buffer between Turkish and Kurdish forces. The Kurdish allies have been used by Washington as a highly effective local force fighting ISIS in Syria. Yeah, it's all confusing. So once again, I called on my old friend and colleague, Jack Rice, to try to explain what's happening. In addition to being a journalist, radio host, and trial attorney, Jack Rice is also a former CIA case officer with lots of experience in the region. So, Jack Rice, you as a CIA case officer, what what years did you actually work with the CIA? I worked during uh, the Bush senior years and also during some of the Clinton years. Ah, Um, and so you have experience with the Kurds and with the Turks? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not just then, but subsequently doing a lot of work. So when I was in Iraq, I was working with some of the Kurds in the north. I was also in Turkey down in a place called Diyarbakir, which is really a Kurdish city in southeastern Turkey, close to the Syrian border. A major airport is there. In fact, uh, a lot of the Turkish uh, F-15s, Apache attack helicopters, a lot of their other military equipment, they fly out of that base. And that's where they actually do their invasions into northern Uh, northern Syria. When I was there last time, that was one of the previous invasions they had been doing, and they did it out of that base. Huh. Okay, so so can we back up a moment? The the relationship with Turkey has been um, historically a good one, if I recall correctly, wasn't it? Well, it was for a while. I mean, the the intention along the lines uh, with the Turks was this, was that Turkey sort of sat between the Middle East and Europe and could be the perfect ally for NATO, for the United States, as an entree into the Middle East and to provide sort of not just a buffer zone, but really an entree, this ability to connect. And so that was the intention. The problem that that has happened over the, the, the last even 10 years, but in the last couple in particular, we have seen President Erdogan become progressively more totalitarian. Mm. There are more journalists in jail, judges in jail, lawyers in jail, and just private citizens in jail than we have ever seen before. It's extraordinary what we have seen out of this uh, this president. But even a step further, what we have also seen is a massive shift from Erdogan beyond the totalitarian piece towards the Russians. So right now what we have is, is a turn, and this is a NATO ally, who most recently bought an air defense system, a massive air defense system uh, from the Russians, from Vladimir Putin, Mm -hmm. which is unbelievable when you consider how important Turkey was and is to NATO uh, and what this meant during the Cold War. So 
we're in a very, very precarious place with the Turks. Obviously. And Donald Trump uh, has sidled up to Erdogan, as he has to Putin and other despotic leaders from Duterte to, uh, uh, I don't know, I I mean, just uh, over and over again. This is who he seems attracted to, while at the same time, he, he further strains our relationship with our strongest allies. Uh, it's a petrifying situation where we are right now in in northern Syria, and it, it is in the short term and it is in the long term. If you look at where we are, what essentially has happened is that the president unilaterally, and when I say unilaterally, I mean not just compared to other countries. I mean, even compared to the own leadership in the United States, going to the Pentagon saying, let's talk about what this means, going to the State Department and say, let's talk about what that means. He never did that. Mm-mm. What he did was he essentially greenlighted the Turks going into northern Syria. And specifically, what the Turks wanted to do was go in and target and slaughter. And I use that word specifically, slaughter our very closest allies in the region, the Kurds, who, by the way, were the foot soldiers, those at the pointy end of the stick that we used and they used to successfully uh, continue to fight against ISIS. And so what we have seen now is essentially, and we're watching it happen, and this is alive, that the Kurds are being slaughtered, the very people who we use and have continued to use mm-hmm. to fight the ISIS because it's not gone. And we've just said, you know what, I know we promised that we were going to take care of you. I know we promised that we would stand beside you against the Turks, but we've decided that we're not going to do that anymore. So now we know, and they know, and everybody else knows that if the Americans make a promise, it's not worth it. Right, right, exactly. Uh, really harming our standing on the world stage. But back to the, the, the relationship between the Turks and the Kurds and Donald Trump's um, <laughs> lack of knowledge, uh, his just total ignorance of any historical information about how, you know, this part of the world operated. He made the statement the other day when he was being questioned about his decision that the Turks and the Kurds are natural enemies. Um, Sorry, that natural enemies occurs maybe in the insect world or in the animal kingdom, not among humans. He just does. And he's using that as an excuse, basically saying, well, they've been at this for centuries, you know, more than the Israelis and the Palestinians. I mean, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah, he, he he really does have no concept of what he's saying here. I, I think that the idea that you say something vehemently, mm-hmm. you say, say, say something intentionally, or you scream it as loud as you can, <laughs> that somehow that makes it true. It, it's not. Uh, historically, you can look at the relationship of the Kurds throughout the entire region. Have they been in the, a thorn in the sides of, of the, the Turks? To some degree, yes. But they've also been in the thorn to the side of uh, the Russians, mm-hmm. uh, the Iranians, <laughs> the Syrians. Yep. Uh, and many other groups, but guess what? So is, you could reverse that and say nobody has friends; they have interests, and that's the nature of of peoples, and that's what we have here. So when you make a a very simplistic and factually incorrect conclusion, there's it's not shocking that the decisions you make uh, are so fundamentally off base. Right, and of course, Donald Trump, instead of acting on behalf of the nation. Our interests, our national security, it's all about 
his personal situation. It's about finding dirt uh, and destroying his personal political opponents. It's enriching himself personally. It's that his priorities are so enormously screwed up. And this is what's alarming so many officials who are, you know, a career for instance, State Department officials or intelligence officials. Now we're learning, Jack Rice, that in addition to the whistleblower, at least four other government officials raised red flags both before and after that July 25th phone call. Um, the whistleblower, we what we do know about this person is that it is a CIA officer who was assigned to the White House. Are there many CIA people inside the administration? Yes. In, yes. In the and White remember, the, the, the whole point of it is this. Uh, on At the White House, what you're going to see is you're going to get uh, envoys, essentially representatives from all, lots of the intelligence community who are, are going to be working at the White House, essentially as the representative from DOD, the representative from NIA, the representative, oh, okay. from, representative from State Department, CIA. So it's not surprising that you're going to see people there, including uh, CIA people. Okay, and so so now we're seeing that there there were lots of other red red flags raised and cause for concern. I'm I'm also hearing that there are multiple whistleblowers out there. So far, we just know of the one, and we've heard about a second one who was actually on the call and who was interviewed by the uh, intelligence community's inspector general to back up the original whistleblower story. Um, how far do you see this going? Well, I, I think maybe the analysis, and this is something that sort of gets lost in the shouting and I, the, the sort of uh, political bickering, and I can even call it that if I like, uh, but I, I look at it like this. If we, if we think about the first step analysis, and the first step in, is this, is should a sitting president, any sitting president, ever pick up the phone, call a foreign power and say, help me get political dirt against my adversary mm-hmm. full stop yep. just just that. that's it and and that's a fundamental it's a fundamental question and and the answer is no not only is it a crime but but more importantly it's something that no president should ever under any circumstances do because of the impact that it causes exactly and, and, and also the potential for blackmail the potential <laughs> uh for what it does to uh international relations the instability it can cause a bunch of different things plus what it really does is it turns the intelligence community in those various countries around their intelligence apparatus as it weaponizes them for the American sitting president against American political adversaries. That's actually what it does. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason you can't do it. And that's the reason you shouldn't do it. And that's the reason there is no justification. And I would go after Obama if he had done this. I would go after Clinton. I would go after Reagan. I would go after anybody because that makes somebody unfit. Absolutely. So, so I would argue that's where you stop. But, but if, you, if you take the next steps here mm-hmm. and you look at this process and, and the argument from um, the administration has been that it's second person, third person information. Right. It doesn't matter. Here's it's a horrible that. individual. They're traitors, et cetera. My response is, first of all, let's talk about step one, which was you picked up the phone and you did what you did. Yeah. That's number one. But, but if you look at the investigation itself, First of all, when you think about what this IG report, the the purpose of going to the inspector general was, the purpose is you go up the chain of command, you do exactly what you're supposed to do when you see something inappropriate, which is exactly what this officer did. And and by the way, rightfully so. 
and, and, and that's simply the case. But the idea of saying that it was secondhand, mm-hmm. that's irrelevant, too. Mm-hmm. Really well, we have a transcript. Right. We have or, or, or a, a readout of the call. We, allegedly, there is a full transcript, which I think well, we now need to see. That in, 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 the, in essence, that's exactly what needs to happen. What yep. we have is an amalgamation of multiple people's recollections of what was said, which is not mm-hmm. the same thing. Right. Uh, but the idea that what we need to understand is exactly what it was that was done why it was done the way that it was done. So you bring in not just this first intelligence individual, but the other three, if there are in fact now four whistleblowers. I'm actually somewhat shocked, to be honest, that it was only four. Mm -hmm. Because I, I can tell you that this analysis that I just laid out, that's the analysis that any intelligence officer would ever have under these circumstances. And they would have gone out after everybody. Remember, I worked for a Republican president I worked for a, a Democratic president, and and in the end, it didn't matter mm-hmm. because the work that we did, we might we would grumble back and forth sometimes about what we thought a sitting president should or shouldn't do, but the idea that we would say whatever a sitting president does would be fine <laughs> is something, especially in terms of how he would impact foreign policy or how he could potentially impact assets is something that we would simply not find acceptable and we would raise a voice up to the IG because of that issue if it were to happen. So this is not a political question. It really isn't. It's a fundamentally constitutional question that's trying to be skewed as political so people can say you can dismiss it. This is not something that could or should be dismissed. No, of course not. And you know what, Jack Rice, a moment ago you said, here is the the question. Should a, a... president ever solicit a foreign leader for for political dirt on a political opponent? Of course the answer is no. You said it right like that. H.R. McMaster was actually asked that in a public setting, I believe, on uh, Thursday. He also answered no, unequivocally. However, that question is being posed by reporters all over Capitol Hill. And to a person, none of these elected officials from Mike Pence to um, uh, Cory Gardner to uh, Joni Ernst and and down the line will not answer. They're just hemming and hawing and hedging. And I mean, in some cases, the questioning goes on with various reporters tag teaming and repeating the question. It's a yes or no question. Should a president ever solicit uh, dirt on a political opponent from a foreign leader, and they just won't say no. It says something about where we are. Yeah. Politically, I understand the nature of politics in the sense that that if you're going to be a politician, it's about survival. And uh, because it's about survival, that means that to stand up against this sitting president when you have the electorate the way they are could be political suicide. But um, at what point really, do you put it, country over party? I mean, this is getting well, ridiculous and, already, and, right? And, and that is the fundamental question, because here's what I can tell you. I remember uh, sitting in a relatively or standing in a relatively small room in the basement of the old headquarters building at the Central Intelligence Agency and raising my right hand and swearing an oath to the Constitution. And my, my oath was not to uh, a party. My oath was absolutely not to a sitting president. My oath was to the country, and my oath was to the Constitution. And that was my obligation. In fact, they've all had to to swear essentially the same oath. 
and what I can tell you is that uh, was I ever in a position where my life was just yes? Um, has it happened since? Yes. Uh, would I do it again under those, those same circumstances? Absolutely, I would. And there have been many, many, many women and men who have paid the ultimate price after making that absolute solemn oath. And this is no different. And so I understand politicians arguing about the need to survive politically, but, but they swore an oath. Mm-hmm. And this oath is greater than they are. And it's about time that we realize that um, the oath matters. You know, the whole, I'm not a big fan of quote unquote patriotism in the sense that, that we somehow see American as, uh, as blindly uh, the best always, and that we do whatever we must do, American no matter what, under any circumstances. Right. Yeah, yeah, this exceptionalism concept is something I'm not particularly fond with because it seems that we can do with it you accept that you can do the worst and most horrible things and we're fine because it's america right that's that's not acceptable but but at the same time what what is required of us is that it's what we aspire to be that matters most and when we swear the oath to stand up as we do and people have died as a result of it many 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 hundreds of thousands of americans have died as a result of that that politicians have an obligation finally to stand up and say, the truth is the truth. There are certain things that um, go beyond the pale. And if we don't accept that this goes beyond the pale, then we're going to accept that this president can do it again. Actually, he did with the Chinese. Uh, but yeah. the next president can do it again. Yeah. So even if, if, even if it's uh, um, any Democrat who wins, then it would be fine for them to do it next. And it's not. It's not fine for any Democrat to do it because I would, want, I would want them out because they would be unfit to be president if they did it. Because I swore the oath that I swore purposely. And for, for that to be what I swear an oath to do is something that I find um, intolerable. Mm-hmm. I, I hear you. And, and obviously, it seems like there are a lot of career government officials from the CIA to hopefully the FBI, hopefully to the State Department and beyond, who are finally saying, enough already. Now is the time for the floodgates to open and we need to um, we need to start uh, protecting the nation. And maybe that's well, what we're, we're seeing, seeing now. right now. There's a uh, um, we know that a senior uh, another senior State Department official working for the secretary ha- has just resigned. Yep. And that, that, that has happened um, within the last 24 hours. Yes. And, you know, I think, again, this is that, that piece of the puzzle where these are people who have spent their entire lives working for, you know, two presidents, four presidents, six presidents, whatever it is. And this president comes, that president goes. They're not particularly aligned to any, regardless of their philosophical bent. Uh, they're aligned to a concept which is much broader than that. And when you start seeing that happen at these kinds of numbers, you would imagine that somebody somewhere should sit down and say, hold on, uh, we, have a, we have a problem. We have a problem, Houston. We have a problem. Uh-huh. So, 
Well, it looks like the tides are perhaps starting to turn because we recall this is the week that the White House counsel, Cicillone or whatever his name is, wrote that ridiculous eight-page letter basically saying, sorry, uh, uh, Congress, um, even though you constitutionally have the right of impeachment, we're saying this is an illegitimate inquiry and, and we're not cooperating in any way, shape or form. And they issued these blanket instructions to um, uh, government employees and former staffers and anybody who will listen not to cooperate, not to comply with subpoenas. And earlier this week, the um, the the uh, uh, ambassador to the European Union um, d- didn't show up, didn't comply. Well, now we heard he will come in next week. And on Friday morning, as we're taping this interview Friday morning, uh, waiting for the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine to show up, and there were questions as to whether or not she would. Well, news alert, she just arrived for her House impeachment deposition, despite Trump's vow not to cooperate. And in other news, another breaking news uh, item that just came down is a federal appeals court just ruled against Trump and ordered financial records turned over to the House. So maybe uh, things are starting to roll as they should in a democracy. I think what we're going to see is it, it was an interesting and startling letter that came out out of the administration, basically saying this was a political, I believe they might even have used witch hunt, and saying this is politically motivated and illegitimate and therefore we will not cooperate and aren't obligated. The problem with that analysis, and I say this as a former prosecutor, is, is that that assumes that a, the White House has the authority to make the evaluation of whether or not an investigation is legitimate or not. Right. They don't. No. Um, they, they simply don't. Because my response would be, let's assume this were completely illegitimate, inappropriate, and literally a witch hunt. The problem is, is the Constitution is pretty specific when it comes to this issue of the authority of Congress and, and their oversight responsibilities. And it doesn't say that if the White House decides that it's politically motivated, they don't have to uh, agree. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. Now, if that were the case, that would be outrageous and there would be other avenues. But what you don't get to do is make the conclusion and say, no, no, we're not going to cooperate because we've decided that. That's right. not how we do things in this country. Right. And, and obviously this letter has been mocked roundly and, and, and people are starting to say, you know, screw that. We're not complying, as witnessed by this former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, um, Marie Yovanovitch, who was ousted by this administration. She now has shown up for her deposition. So that's a good sign. It's going to be interesting. You've got, you got to realize here's a connection to this piece is that if we look at the two individuals tied to Rudy Giuliani, uh, the president's essentially private lawyer, advisor, emissary, I'm not quite sure what he is. Uh, and two of his business associates were just arrested yesterday in Florida as they were preparing to flee the country. And these were two individuals who, at least it's been reported, uh, were tied specifically into uh, the Ukrainian question. And they were, they were intentionally involved and maybe even tied into uh, U- Ukrainian officials to get the American ambassador to Ukraine fired. So that's a big part of what was going on. They've actually been uh, indicted based, based upon uh, uh, some of the lobbying work they were doing. But what I really think is going on with that piece 
is that that's going to be leveraged by the district attorney in Manhattan Mm -hmm. to actually get more information on this issue of the impeachment question, because it's about what it was that Giuliani, as tied to these guys, was doing on behalf of the president. Because you may not be able to get Giuliani because he will maybe keep his mouth shut regardless and go to prison until he gets uh, immunity. Uh, it's possible. Who knows pardoned, what's right, going to happen? Right. But, but oh, pardon. Yeah, worse. Uh, but these two men, on the other hand, this is a much different situation because anytime you're, you're dealing with a, and I'm not calling this that yet, a, a criminal conspiracy, anytime you're prosecuting something like this, if you're smart, you don't start at the top. You start at the bottom and, sure. you, and you work your foot, the foot soldiers in the organization and you get their statements nice and clean and tight. And then you use those and you work your way up the chain. And the chain is not very long in this particular case. So this may be a piece of that, too. Absolutely. Hey, Jack Rice, before I let you go, I just want to return for a moment to Turkey and, and Syria and the Kurds um, because it weighs so heavily on me. I think about all those is civilians being bombed uh, by by the Turks um, and, and Donald Trump, you know, turning a blind eye. I've seen accounts of soldiers, special special forces in the area, American troops who had been fighting alongside the Kurds, who have now been ordered to stand down. And they say they're ashamed and sickened by the fact that they're not allowed to help our allies. Why? I, I mean, it, it, to me, it it's not only to me, this is a genocide being carried out against the the Kurdish people on behalf of of, uh, Erdogan and and Turkey. Why do they want to wipe out these people? Is it over land? What's what's their beef? The Turks uh, for a long time have targeted the Kurds in Turkey, not just in Istanbul, but primarily where they were found in the east, and into the Northeast, but the Southeast in particular. And what they have done is they have uh, named them uh, terrorists and they've called them terrorists. And when I was in Diyarbakir uh, in the Southeast of the country, uh, that was where I saw bombing take place, uh, where the Turks were actually going after the Kurds themselves. And they have tried to kill lots and lots, and they've been very successful at killing lots and lots of them. Mm. Now, what the Turks have always believed is that these Kurds who are terrorists in their own country, that's Erdogan's argument, the Kurds across the border in northern Syria are their cousins and are also terrorists. And they're supporting the terrorism in Turkey, and therefore they need to be eliminated as well. And so they have targeted them very purposely and, and as you just described, the real problem is this, is what President uh, um, Trump did when he greenlighted the invasion by the Syrians, excuse me, by the Turks into northern Syria. They were very specific about what they wanted to do. They were going in to slaughter America's closest allies in the region. That's, what they, that's why they were going in. Right. And they knew it. Yeah. So part of it, it's not about land. It's about destroying human beings. And that's the argument, despite the fact that these very same people are the ones who were fundamental in the success in in taking down ISIS. Now, remember, we're talking about 300,000 civilians that were in that border region where the invasions take place. These are all civilians in the northern Syria region uh, that are in, in the crosshairs of the Turks right now. So they're fleeing like crazy, trying to survive. 
there's another 100,000 refugees on the on the Turkish side of that border who had already fled, who were also watching in horror, because they don't know what's going to happen to them next, let alone all the other refugees in the region that are involved. So there's that piece. But, but add this to the mix. You realize that the, the Kurds in northern Syria, this is what they face. They face the invasion from the north uh, by the, the Turks. Those Turks are now using, to some degree, uh, Russian weapons rather than American weapons because they've pivoted to Putin. Uh, at the same time, the Damascus regime, the Assad regime, uh, ha- is moving north toward those very same Kurds to take, to take them out as well. So you have that piece, and they're also using Russian weapons. And finally, you have the Iranians, who've never particularly liked the Kurds either, so they're going to come, come crushing from the east to destroy the Kurds. So if you look at where we are, here's what we have. The Turks have won, because now what they have is, is enormous um, capability. They have enormous authority and power, and there's a huge vacuum because the Americans have simply pulled out and have vanished from the world stage. The Russians, who have pivoted Erdogan and, and Turkey by now selling them weapons, have been involved in, in the processes of peace and funding of the war itself and influence in the region. They're winning there. They're also funding the Assad regime, and they're winning there. They've also been involved in, in this trilateral peace process for a while with the Turks and the Iranians. And so the Russians win there. And mm-hmm. then we finally have the Iranians because now what you have is the crushing of the Kurds that even reached to some degree into northern Iran is something now the Iranians can do at the very same time. So the Iranians win. Now notice, the Turks, the Russians, and the Iranians. Is the Amer- are the Americans referenced at all? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. no. You know, um, so so much for art of the deal. Right. Now, so let, let me ask you one last, let me run this one last uh, theory by you. My husband actually floated it when I was uh, trying to figure out what Trump gets out of this. What, why, who he's appeasing with this. Is, it, is he sucking up to Erdogan because of the Trump Towers in Istanbul? Is it about <clears throat> Putin? My husband um, said, actually, it's neither of those. Think about MBS, that uh, uh, Khashoggi was dismembered it was inside the Turkish embassy, if you remember correctly. And, and he wants to do a favor for MBS to, to make this go away. Maybe he cuts a deal with Erdogan saying, uh, let you invade, take out the Kurds, just, um, you know, clear MBS from this mess. What do you think about that? I, I think that it's a combination of things. My, my biggest problem, um, honestly, with... A, a particular uh, personality type uh, like the president's is this. He, he truly and honestly believes he's the smartest man in the room. Uh-huh. He said so over and over and over <laughs> yeah. again. And, and so what, what he will do is he doesn't listen to anybody. And in fact, he, he ignores everybody. He talks about bringing in the smartest people in the room and he's fired every single one of them because he thinks he knows the answers. And so his vision is the vision, but his vision is myopic. And, and, and so even if he were to look at this, like a businessman in terms of saying, how do I make money? Because that's been the goal of his life. 
The problem is, is what he does as president has nothing to do with that. And maybe that's a piece of it, but that's not everything that he's dealing with. So when he fired every, every general, every uh, uh, major political figure that's come into the room, every geopolitical figure that's come into the room, and even uh, we look back at uh, the first secretary of state under him, and, and he fired him too Tellerson, because yeah. his vision was different. Exactly. Now, because of that, I think his view is ultimately incredibly myopic as to what it is he's trying to accomplish. And he doesn't even think about the 17 or 18 or 500 other ramifications that happen when you make decisions like these. He looks at just the things that he's looking at and nothing else because he didn't think about it. So it doesn't matter because he knows because he's the smartest man in the room. So could it, could it be uh, tied to the Khashoggi piece? Mm -hmm. It could be. I mean, we, we have to remember that he was. He was killed at uh, the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul just over a year ago right. where he was, he was um, targeted and assassinated and dismembered essentially, essentially by one particular man who ordered it to happen. He might as well have done it himself. He might as well have cut this journalist to pieces himself. But we have done nothing but award him since that time. So the idea of saying doing this again does it make any difference? I don't think he particularly cares. Right. I don't no, think he thinks think about this. The problem is, is I don't think he thinks deeply enough about any of these issues to think about the ultimate ramifications at any level. So in the end, it's not about Khashoggi. In the end, it's not about Erdogan. It's not about Putin. Mm-hmm. It's, about Donald it's not Trump. about the Iranians. It's about Donald Trump because he's the smartest man in the room, just ask him. He's a very stable genius. Uh, Jack Rice, it is always a pleasure. I so appreciate your expertise. Uh, Thank you for weighing in with us today. Great to be with you. You can find Jack on Twitter, at Jack Rice. He's also on Facebook. And his website is jackrice.net. And before I wrap things up for the day, uh, one more bit of breaking news. From the Pentagon, where Defense Secretary Mark Esper, in addition to warning Turkey's Erdogan to halt its military offensive into Syria, he also announced that the Pentagon would be deploying nearly 2,000 troops to Saudi Arabia to boost defenses against Iran. Esper said the move would place new fighter jets and air defense systems in Saudi Arabia to help a key ally confront what the Trump administration has described as a heightened threat from Iran. The deployment, which officials said would place roughly 1,800 additional troops in the Middle East, is the second troop increase related to recent attacks on Saudi oil facilities. So much for Donald Trump ending the endless wars, right? That's nonsense. Abandoning the Kurds was all about Trump's machinations with Erdogan and MBS and Putin. It has nothing to do with withdrawing from the endless wars. The man continues to lie every time he opens his mouth. It never ends, does it? But this does. With that, we reach the end of another edition of the broadcast and the end of my guest hosting stint. This time out anyway. I'll be back again, I'm sure, at some point when Brad and Desi take an actual vacation. But my time filling in for them while they went through a family tragedy has come to an end. They'll be back on the next episode of the broadcast. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the work I've done, I invite you to come over to NicoleSandler.com and check out my show. I'm on Tuesday through Friday. We're live at 3 Eastern, 
at NicoleSandler.com or on 5 Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network and available via podcast anytime. Thank you for bearing with me over the last few weeks. Welcome back to Brad and Desi. Ah, And as we await their return, I leave you with these sentiments that Brad and I share because we certainly need it. Good luck, world.